All right, well, we're going to turn our attention to a passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 8 this morning. Uh, We are journeying together into this theme of God's love for people, and uh, the title of the series is This is Love, and our message today is focused on a love that conquers death, a love that conquers death. There are many places we could look to in Scripture that speak to this theme, but my favorite And one of the most significant and powerful uh, scriptures that speak to it comes to us from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. So if you would stand with me for uh, the declaration of God's word, just as a simple sign of honor and respect for the, the word of God and the power that it carries to touch and change our lives, let's read together these verses. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Yet no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the truth of God's word from Romans chapter 8. You can be seated. We've been talking about how the resurrection, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is the supreme example, the supreme illustration or demonstration of God's love for people. And we're going to continue to think about that and talk about that together this morning. But I want you to focus with me specifically on the idea that Jesus' love, God's love for people, holds a unique power. Power to conquer death itself. Last week, we talked about the power of God's love to forgive sin. These things are all related, of course, and interconnected, but this morning, we're going to focus on the power of God's love to conquer death. Now, let me begin this morning with uh, what I think is a fantastic story. I don't know how many of you still bother to read the news. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of debate in our Uh, present day and age about what news is true and what news is not true, Uh, you know, what what news is fake and what news is real. 
here's a story that I can guarantee is real news, and I wish that it would have been more widely reported, but uh, I'm glad that it was reported at all because it's really a rather incredible story and a great illustration of what I want to talk about today. It's a story that comes from a local Fox News syndicate in St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, The dateline is Thursday, April the 18th, just about three weeks ago. The story goes like this. Two Florida teens were enjoying their senior skip day at the beach when they suddenly found themselves stranded in the ocean. Did you hear this story? Tyler Smith and Heather Brown, students at Christ's Church Academy, what were they skipping school for? (laughs) Anyway, um, students who've been friends since fourth grade were swimming off uh, Villano Beach near St. Augustine on Thursday, April the 18th, when they realized that they might not be able to make it back to shore. Weak and tired from fighting the waves For two hours and two miles offshore, I think the current was moving them in the wrong direction, the 17-year-old soccer players told Fox News that they started praying to God and crying out for help. I would too if I were in that situation. I cried out, if you really do have a plan for us, like, come on, just bring something. Tyler recalled to Fox News 30. Tyler held on to Heather as his muscles started cramping. And just in time, Captain Eric Wagner and his crew found them. Over all the wind and waves and the engines of the boat, we thought we heard a desperate scream, Wagner told the local station. Exhausted and near the end, the boy told me he had called out for God's help, and then we showed up. Wagner called the Coast Guard as he took his boat to their rescue. The crew headed, was headed from Delray Beach to New Jersey and had decided to go out despite the rough waves just for an adventure. Both Wagner and the teens were thankful for that decision, and fittingly, The name of the boat, the Amen. The Amen. I told them the name of the vessel, and that's when they started to cry. Wagner said, the young couple was gracious and grateful to us and to God, and it was the latter all along, the captain said. The two friends who graduate on May 19th both plan on serving in the military and believe that this experience will help them in the future. From us crying out to God for him to send someone for us to keep keep us alive, and then a boat named Amen coming to our rescue, there's no way that it wasn't him. Tyler told Fox News. There's no way, right? Can you agree? Can we agree? There's no way that this is just a coincidence, that that a boat called the Amen, comes to the rescue at just the last moment to find these two young people and to save them before they would drown. 
Well, what does a story like that serve to illustrate for us? It shows us, among other things, that the power of death typically holds considerable influence over our thoughts and feelings. There's, there's a common fear that we all face that something might happen to me or to someone that I love. And yet, the story at the same time shows us that death and whatever fear we may have of it is not the ultimate power at work in the universe. That, my friends, is exactly what Romans 8 is all about. And this is an incredible passage of Scripture to speak to us about God's power and God's love, which have overcome the power of death. Let me begin here with just a basic observation about death and the fear of death and other things that feed into that fear. There are many human experiences, and I would say most of all, death itself, that cause people to question and doubt God's love for them. Have you found yourself in in this situation where, where something goes wrong in your life and you begin to wonder if God really loves you? You begin to imagine, perhaps, that he's not paying attention, that he's preoccupied with other people's problems, which must be bigger than yours, or maybe that he's not even there, that he doesn't really care about you. Have you ever felt that there are forces out there that are arrayed against you and you're uncertain of who's on your side? powers at work that aim to to make your life amount to nothing, to take you out? Have you ever wondered how God could possibly love you when life seems so full of pain and disappointment? Now, I want you to notice that this section of Romans 8 revolves around the answer to an important question. But it's a very different question than the one that I've just posed, the one that most of us are often wondering about. Most people are wondering, how could God possibly love me when bad things happen in my life? How could he allow them to happen if he really loved me? Why hasn't he protected me from those experiences? Those are the questions that people often wonder about. And there are lots of books that have been written on those themes. But here's the question that Paul's wondering about. And it's a very different question. It's a question that comes from a very different perspective. And I want you to note the difference. Here's what Paul's wondering. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, if God is for us, who could be against us? Now, notice that with this question, Paul does not mean to suggest or imply that no one is against us, that nothing is against us. He's not saying, you know, well, God's on our side, therefore we have no enemies. That's not what he's saying. When he says, who can be against us, what he's saying is nothing or no one who is against us has the power to overcome the one who's for us. What he's saying is that nothing, no power or principality against us is greater than the love of God and the power of God. In other words, this is a statement of victory. This question is rhetorical. The answer is meant to come flying into your mind. 
It's a declaration. If God is on your side, then nothing against you can be victorious in the end. Or to be more precise, I think we should say that we're on his side, not that he's on our side. If that's the case, then nothing can ultimately overtake you. But again, the implication behind the question is that we do have enemies. We do have adversaries. There are things or people or powers or principalities that are against us. Let's be honest about that. Check out verse 35 and you'll begin to see the, 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 you know, a bit of a list that Paul's started to form. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a list of our adversaries. Verse 35 begins to describe some of the forces and powers that seem to be against us, that seem to want to separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 35, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's a pretty good list, I think, isn't it? And and what I want you to notice, by the way, as we think about this little list for a moment, is that these are not just like hypothetical things that Paul's imagining. These are not hypothetical adversaries. No, these are experiences that Paul has endured. These are things that he's been through personally. So he's not writing in the abstract here. He's not thinking and writing about some hypothetical situation. No, what he's saying is, trust me, I've been there. I've experienced each one of these things, and it was not powerful enough to separate me from the love of God in Christ. And then he gets to verse 36, where he points to the ultimate power arrayed against us. The power that all these other things in verse 35 are servants of in the end. It's the power of death. Death itself. Quoting from Psalm 44, Paul says, As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. How's that for a life philosophy? I mean, it doesn't sound all that appealing, does it? It doesn't sound, you know, like something we want to say yes and amen to. And yet, we should. Because what Paul is saying here is that though we face death all day long, though it is always knocking on the door, though it is always coming against us, it is not and will not be victorious over us. Paul is describing the threat of death or the fear of death, however you want to think about it, that is common to humanity. It's the great tragedy of the human experience, right? We all face it. Some people face it with a sense of of gloom, a sense of fear, a a great sense of anxiety. I came across one commentator who referred to people like this as catastrophizers, I thought that was an interesting term to coin, catastrophizer. Have you ever known one or met one, talked with one before? A catastrophizer is someone who imagines catastrophes around every corner. Someone who's got a very active imagination and a good dose of worry mixed in with it. So that they're often thinking about how everyday situations might potentially turn deadly. 
A walk by the sea could lead to a bite by a rare crab, which triggers a deadly infection. A swim in the ocean might lead to a crazy undertow and a two-hour escapade fighting for your life. A leisurely hike in the mountains could be shrouded by a fast-moving storm that turns the weather cold and turns conditions extreme. You might be struck by lightning, after all. A road trip for a friend's wedding could become a nightmare when a semi-truck gets a flat tire. On and on it goes. The list of possibilities is endless. Why do people think about things like this? What is it in us that tends to imagine the worst-case scenario? Well, it's because every now and then, things like this actually happen, don't they? This is reality. This is life and death. It wasn't too long ago that a young gal from Mason was killed in a head-on car accident just a few weeks ago, and she's a, a friend of my, my brother-in-law's and her, his daughter. Things like this happen. And so we begin to imagine the worst-case scenario. We begin to fear the power of death and when it might come our way. The fear of all fears is the fear of death. Death is the great ending, the great finality, the inescapable curtain call that everyone must face. In fact, uh, one of my all-time favorite movie scenes and you'll either laugh at it hysterically or it'll make you break into a cold sweat, is Siggy's pillow talk from What About Bob? Check this out. Sound? Are you afraid of death? Yeah. Me too. There's no way out of it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. What difference does it make if it's tomorrow or 80 years? Much sooner in your case. Do you know how fast time goes? I was six, like yesterday. Me too. I'm going to die. You are going to die. What else is there to be afraid of? <laughs> oh, I couldn't resist. So thank you for indulging me that moment. Let, let me... Let me bring this into the modern era. Some of you are like, what? what's that movie? I've never, never seen that one yet. Um, uh, there's a popular movie out right now, and I won't give away anything about the storyline, but it is striking to me. Perhaps you've thought about this. Is, isn't it striking about Avengers Endgame that the most popular movie of all time, the biggest opening in history, revolves around the basic question of whether the power of death is really permanent and irreversible. That's the theme of the movie. Isn't it interesting that the storyline of this movie defines true heroism as the ability to conquer the power of death? Do those themes 
remind you of someone we know a little something about, someone who really did conquer the power of death. Now, uh, before we get to what happened on Sunday morning, of course, we have to face the reality of what happened on Friday afternoon. That is good Friday afternoon. And you know what's striking about the death of Jesus is that when Jesus went to the cross on that fateful Friday, it seemed to be, from the vantage point of his disciples, anything but good Friday. It's ironic, isn't it, that we've come to refer to it as Good Friday because it was the day that Jesus went to the cross. And his disciples, as much as he tried to warn them, didn't see it coming. They weren't prepared for what they were about to experience. They were devastated. The dream was over, they thought. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus said, they had hoped that Jesus would be their Messiah. But now that hope was gone. It had come to a flaming end. Their heads were hung low. Their bodies felt lifeless. Their hearts were hollow. Their eyes were swollen from weeping. How could this be? What happened? They killed him. And it's good for us, in a moment like this, not to rush past reflecting on that moment of disillusionment. The darkness and the tragedy of Good Friday capture how we often feel, how people often feel in life, overwhelmed by brokenness and disappointment, overwhelmed by the reality of death, filled with discouragement or despair, aware of the darkness and the fear in each of our own hearts. Death is typically seen as the end of all possibilities for us. And if there's no answer for death, then all other answers to all other questions are rather pointless. They don't really matter in the end, do they? But there is an answer to the threat of death. Here's where we come to the hope that Paul portrays for us in Romans chapter 8. What I want you to see is the answer that Paul's describing It's the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is stronger than the power of death. In the resurrection of Jesus, God shows the world that his love is stronger than death. That's what this is about. This is the essence of the good news that Paul's describing in Romans chapter 8. He's saying, Jesus did it. Jesus was was victorious. He won the great battle between the forces and powers of death and the forces and powers of life. Jesus is greater in this sense than Iron Man and Thor and the Hulk all put together in one. He did it by going to the grave and returning from the grave for us. Look at verse 34 of Romans chapter 8. This is Paul's emphatic declaration of the hope that we have in Christ. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is now at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. That's amazing. 
If that's true, wow, that's a game changer. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, risen from the dead, and interceding for you. I mean, we think about praying to him, but how often do we think about him praying for us? And the preaching of the New Testament goes on in many other places, particularly in the book of Acts and in Paul's writings, to make a point to say something actually that's rather important for us to recognize here. It's the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Why does that matter? Well, actually it matters because, just to be really clear, though I was using the idea to get you connecting with the movie, Jesus is not meant to be thought of here as the great superhero himself. Because we don't want to have in our minds the notion that perhaps he was only mostly dead. Right? Perhaps he was still breathing just a little bit when he went to the tomb. The point of the gospel writers is that Jesus was not just mostly dead. He was completely dead, lifeless. And the Father raised him up by the Holy Spirit. So the gospel writers and the first preachers of the gospel of Jesus want us to know that Jesus did really, truly die. He was buried, and when he was buried, he was fully dead. But God the Father did not abandon him to the grave, which vindicates Jesus' faithful obedience to the Father and his sacrificial death. Here are a few of the ways that the New Testament talks about this and describes it. From the words of Peter, recorded in Acts chapter 5, we read, The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and and forgive their sins. You see, what Peter's describing with these words is the deliverance of God, the victory of God. And then a few chapters later in Acts chapter 13, we find the Apostle Paul reflecting on the same reality with slightly different words. Verses 36 and 37, Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. And Paul, in that context, is explaining the fulfillment of several Old Testament prophecies that spoke about the resurrection. Paul would later develop that theme even further in his letters to the churches that he would write. And he started uh, uh, many of those churches himself and was aiming to encourage them in faith along the way. He understood that the resurrection of Jesus was, was not just good news for Jesus, it was, it was good news for the world and, and particularly for the church. So there were some Christians in Corinth that weren't sure about all this. They were uncertain whether it was really critical to believe in the resurrection. Couldn't, couldn't we just say that Jesus was a good teacher and that he was still here with us spiritually, not physically? 
Why does it matter if we proclaim and declare the resurrection to be a true historic fact? Those questions brought out some of Paul's clearest teaching on the resurrection found in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he says. Listen closely. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. A little bit later on in the chapter, Paul comes back to this, roaring back to this same theme again. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Verse 51, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm describing to you here is that Paul understood, Paul understood this divine revelation, this divine insight that's critical for each one of us to understand if we want to overcome our own fear of death. Paul's essentially saying Christ's resurrection is the defeat of death, not just for him, but for all of us. And notice here that Paul is identifying, clearly identifying death as an enemy, an adversary, not a friend. Let's be clear about this. Death is not your friend. Death is not a doorway into the next life. Death is not a, it, it's, it's a beast. It's an enemy. But it's an enemy that will be destroyed because of Jesus' victory at the cross and the grave. So imagine a life free, completely free from the fear of death. That's what Paul's inviting you into with his words in Romans chapter 8. Much of our fear is related to the fear of death and its finality. But what if we can look that monster in the face, that superpower, and imagine the worst scenario of all And then say, you know what? Even if that happens, I still win. I'm still victorious over death in the end. See, when power is abused, the weapon that's wielded over people is the fear of death. Tyrants and thieves, dictators and despots, they all resort 
they all resort to one ultimate threat, the threat of death. But when death holds no power of you, when the fear of death holds no power, you're able to stand up against anyone or anything and stand firm because you know the victory is yours. That was the experience of the earliest Christians who were persecuted and put to death as martyrs by the Roman Empire. Were they afraid? Perhaps a little bit. I'm sure they were. And yet they knew that they would be victorious over death because of the resurrection of Jesus. So this is why it's so important for us to understand what really happened to Jesus, that he didn't just have like a near-death experience, that, that he was, you know, wasn't just resuscitated after passing out on the cross. Jesus died. He was pierced in the side, which caused blood and water to flow out, a medical note on the finality of his death. The disciples then, after his death, were not hallucinating when they saw him again. They weren't imagining something. The disciples weren't using the word resurrection to describe, you know, Jesus going to heaven after he died and being present with them spiritually. They were talking about encountering the risen Christ. Resurrection is not resuscitation. Resurrection is not hallucination. Resurrection is not a spiritualization of the afterlife. Resurrection is what God brings about when all other possibilities are gone. It's overcoming the power and the finality of our greatest adversary. And this victory in Christ is available to each and every one of us. That brings me in the end, to, to Romans 8, 37 and following, the grand finale of this passage of Scripture where Paul describes what it means for us to be more than conquerors in Christ. But before we get there, let me just draw your attention for a brief moment back to something we saw in Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. We read these words just a moment ago. Let me draw you back to them. Paul says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The point that Paul's driving at here is that death entered the world through sin as the natural result, the natural consequence of sin. And it came through initially one man. Adam. But in like manner, what he's saying, in like manner, the resurrection, resurrection life has now come through one man, that is Christ Jesus. And again, the resurrection of Jesus is not just good news for him, it's good news for all of us. That's the point that Paul's underscoring here. And there's nothing we can do to deserve this, there's nothing we can do to earn it. Resurrection doesn't emerge from our potential or from our achievement. 
No one can raise themselves up from the dead. But in Christ, resurrection life is available to each and every one of us. And that is the essence of the good news of the gospel. One day, every person who is in Christ will be raised up with a glorious new resurrection body. We will have bodies like the resurrection body of Jesus. It's a bit mysterious. We don't know exactly what those bodies will be like. We understand that they will be different than and better than these bodies that we have here and now. Now, lest you think that this is all about pie in the sky, in the sweet by and by, let me emphasize something that Paul talks about in the earlier verses of Romans chapter 8, because he wants us to understand that the promise of eternal life, the promise of resurrection life, doesn't just begin after we die. It begins here and now. It's available to us in this very moment. Hard to understand and conceptualize how that works, but here's what Paul says in Romans 8.11. He says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Did you catch that? Think about it carefully. What what Paul's saying is that the Holy Spirit, the one who raised Jesus up from the dead, is now living in us if we are followers of Christ. We have the presence of the Spirit. We have the life of the Spirit, the everlasting life, the abundant life of the Holy Spirit is in us and with us from the moment we confess Christ as Savior and Lord. That that should give us incredible hope, incredible joy, an incredible experience of the fullness of life. And that brings us then full circle back to where Paul ends with this great crescendo of truth in Romans 8, 37 to 39. Let me read this declaration again for you. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, think about that long and hard. What that means is that there is nothing, absolutely nothing in in all creation that's capable of separating us from God's love. There's no power greater than the love of God. It's the love of God that conquers the power of sin and death. Because Jesus took on death and let it exhaust its power on him, we too can overcome it. Because the Father, in his love, raised Jesus up from the grave, we too have the hope of being raised up from the grave and walking in eternal life with God. 
This is not just about being conquerors. Just one last insight here that I find compelling and inviting. We're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Let me tell you how I understand that, how I interpret that. If I can do so using a sports analogy, there are times when we rejoice in a victory only to come quickly to the recognition that there's another game the next day. There's another battle the next day, right? And so, you know, take, take your favorite sports team, for example, and uh, think about the last time you were able to rejoice in a championship that they won. If you're a Tigers fan, it's been a while now. In any case, even if the Tigers won the championship, the World Series, this year, that victory would be short-lived, wouldn't it? I mean, we, we might remember it and look fondly back on it for the next 20 years after it happens or 50 years after it happens, but it's short-lived because the cycle just turns right back around. There's another, ge- there's another season. There's, another, there's always another game. There's always another season. There's always another battle to be won. So in that sense, you know, uh, we tend to think of winning, we tend to think of conquering our adversary as a temporary reality, a momentary reality, only to see that the, the adversary rises up to come at us again. Here's what I think it means for us to be more than conquerors. What Jesus is saying here is that death has been defeated once and for all. It's never going to rise up and come back at us again. We haven't just won this battle over death temporarily as if we'll have to face it again. We've won it forever. The victory of Jesus over the power of death is once and for all. It's forever. So unlike our favorite sports teams, we aren't just victors for a day or for a season. Eternal life is the gift of God. That means we've conquered the power of death through faith in Jesus Christ forever. That, my friends, is the power of God's love. Let me close with one last video that just sums this up in a a beautiful way. I want you to just reflect on this and reflect on the reality of God's love for you forever. Amen. Of all the fears that grip our hearts, no fear is greater than the fear of death. There are those who will tell you that death is a natural part of life. But if death is just a part of life, then why does it cause us such anger and sorrow? When God created humanity, he intended for us to grow more and more beautiful over time. But in one tragic moment, we unleashed sin into the world, and everything broke, including our bodies. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin, and it fills God's heart with anger and sorrow even more than it does ours, because death was not a part of God's original plan. 
The Bible says that when Jesus approached the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he quaked with rage and his eyes filled with tears. He was overwhelmed by the suffering caused by death, a curse we had brought upon ourselves. Death's curse was physical. Both the world and our bodies were decaying. But death's curse was also spiritual, eternally separating humanity from their creator, the source of all light, love, and life. But because of God's amazing love, he chose to surrender all power and glory to rescue us from death. Jesus, God's only son, was expelled from the presence of the Father and thrust into complete darkness in our place. He took humanity's curse upon himself, breaking death's grip on us and purchasing humanity a place at the Father's side forever. A day is coming when the true king will return at last to restore the world to its full glory and us with it, renewing both soul and body. You'll still be yourself, but even more so. You'll finally be the real you. On that day, we'll look at each other and say, I always knew you could be like this. I saw glimpses of the real you, flashes of it, and now here you are. Our future is not an ethereal, impersonal one. You're not going to float through the clouds. You're going to walk. You're going to eat. You're going to laugh. You're going to hug. You're going to sing in realms and degrees of power and joy that you cannot now imagine. Some will tell you not to fear death because it's part of life. But Jesus says not to fear death because it's been defeated. And the day will come when Jesus embraces you with his nail-scarred hands and says, Welcome home. I have so much to show you. Amen. Hey, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the wonder, the absolute wonder of that, that thought, that idea, Lord, that you're going to welcome us home one day, take us up in your arms and pour out your, your love and affection for us, and then that we would hear you say, well done, my beloved son or daughter. I have so much to show you. Lord, even now, we pray that you would continue to show us the power of your love. Continue to show us the wonder of this gift of life, eternal and abundant life that you've placed within us by the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, for, for each and every person here, God, that that abundant and eternal life would be experienced. That there wouldn't be a one of us, Lord, that would walk away empty-handed. I pray, Jesus, that you would hold your hands out to each one who doubts, to each one who fears, to each one who's uncertain. I pray, even as with Thomas, Lord, that you would show us the reality of what you've done. 
Show us the reality of who you are. And show us, Lord, ultimately, show us the reality of this victory that has won, that, that's been won for us. So that we can walk in it. So that we can live by it. So that we can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus, we thank you that you are supremely the one who's conquered sin and death. But that you've offered that victory now to us and that we, with you, are conquerors as well. Fill us, Lord, with hope. Fill us with life. Fill us with boldness and courage. We invite you and we welcome you, Lord, to break the power of every fear at work within us that is not of you and from you and for you. We want to fear nothing but you. And when we speak of fearing you, Lord, what we mean is to respect you, to honor you, to recognize the, su the supreme power and glory that you hold, that are yours alone. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that you've given us the revelation. You gave it to Paul. You've given it now to each one of us, Lord, that your perfect love casts out all fear.